We are studying the book of Ecclesiastes. The theme of that book is life under the sun. And since we today may read it in the light of the New Testament, we may add that it tells us about life under the sun with the sun. In our study so far, we've reached the third chapter, and our lesson begins today with verse 16. There, that word begins furthermore. What he's going to say ties in with what he has said. For he has been pointing out to us, we've already seen that great message, the second message of this book, which has to do with God's sovereign control of life under the sun. We have seen so far, as he's tried to describe this to us in the first 15 verses, we have seen that life under the sun, including its various times, is controlled by our sovereign, omniscient, loving, heavenly Father. And that each of us can say, my times are in thy hand. We have also seen that God has given each man his task to perform under the sun. And each believer recognizes from Ephesians 2.10 that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We also have noticed that the Koheleth tells us that God assures man that he makes all things beautiful in his time. And you and I have that promise there in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love the Lord. He is causing all things to work together for the good of conforming us to the image of his precious Son. And he controls it all. Fourth thing he would, we learn is that God assures man, he assures each one of us, that we can enjoy our lives under the sun instead of experiencing vexation of spirit as we put, as he puts, as, pardon me, as we put, our hands to the task of performing what he has given us to do. As we apply ourselves to doing of that good which he has given to us, we will truly experience his joy in this life. And finally, we saw that he reminds us that if we will but surrender ourselves to his control, and let him work through us that what he accomplishes through us will be for eternity. We close with that little couplet, you'll remember. Only one life 
will soon be past. Only what we let Christ do through us will last. However, as the Koaleth is writing this thing, he, uh, he is conscious also that there are many men who object. The natural man cannot accept the concept of God's control of life under the sun. He wants to put man in center stage. He insists, as did Adam, that he must do his own thing in his own way, in his own strength, and he is the master of his own fate. He objects to this whole doctrine. And he reaches out and he tries to find reasons for objecting. And here, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes strides right smack into the problems, facing them one after the other, that men have raised, saying that these things contradict what he's been teaching us, that God controls life under the sun. The first of these is a series of things, series of evils that appear on the face of the earth. And these men ask us the question, can God, if he is a good God, if he really exists, how come these things are here? Oh, how we hear this every time. I remember as a young student, as part of my training, I was assigned to, the, to go to the Cook County Hospital in Chicago, Illinois, and to visit in the wards there to pass out tracts, to evangelize, and to pray for those that were sick. This was a place of great pain. These wards with as many as 20 beds in a ward filled with people of all stages of serious illness. And we would go there and we would pass out tracts and pray with the people. It was a good training ground for a prospective pastor and missionary. And I never will forget one time I walked up to one man and I handed him my track and he received it. And as he received it, he looked at it. His face became clouded with anger. And he took the track and ruffled it up and threw it right at me. And he said, get that blankety-blank thing out of here and don't bring it to me. Don't talk to me about God who is good. Look around you and see the pain and suffering that is here. How can you believe that a good God could exist and yet men suffer in such agony and pain as you see around here now? He shouted this, and every eye in the place focused upon him. And I want to tell you, I looked for every kind of a hole to crawl into. All I could think to do was to reach down and pick up my little track and smooth it out as best I could and mumble to him, I'm sorry that you are in pain. I'm sorry that your life has been one event of hell after another. But I assure you that God does love you and that Jesus went through hell to save you. That did not soften his voice. Again, he told me where to go and how to get there. And I left. 
And as I walked away, I walked to the next table, the next bed there, and the person just frowned at me. And I went to the second one, and he just frowned at me. And I went to the third one, and this lady just frowned at me. And I came to the fourth one, and in the fourth bed was one of the biggest and most ferocious black men I have ever seen. I stood a long ways off and offered him my track. He reached out his hand and took it, and his face was transformed with a beautiful smile. And a soft voice came up out of his pillow, and he said to me, Sonny, can you imagine anybody calling me Sonny? <laughs> there was a day. He said, Sonny, he said, that man's in great pain. He's suffering intensely. Don't let him bother you. He said, it's true. He said, we, we who trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior, we find it awfully hard to lay here in pain and patiently wait for him to do his work. Oh, how that man ministered to me that day. He made it possible for me not to run to the exit, but to walk to it and go away. But you know what that angry man said is the very thing that Koheleth is talking about right here. For in verse 16, you'll notice he points out to us the number one problem that is faced by those who teach that God controls life under the sun. What is it? Why, he says, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. The presence of injustice. Why doesn't God do something about it? You know, this verse reads almost like our, our newspaper today. In fact, the translation found over, rather the, the paraphrase found in the, in the Living Bible puts it this way. Moreover, I noticed that throughout the land, justice is giving way to crime and even the police courts are corrupt. On every hand, we see injustice. On every hand, we see criminals set loose from jail to go out and to commit murder. And in the paper today is another tale, another story of another criminal who has murdered several children and women and they want to let him loose again. And Governor, Governor Duke Majin is fighting the battle, whether to or not to. The very systems that man have set up to bring justice to earth, to establish law and order, are corrupted, corrupted almost beyond remedy. Why doesn't God do something about it? And so, the Kaheleth writes, and in verse 18 he says, I said to myself, faced with the fact of injustice everywhere, crime on the increase, the innocent bystander being hurt at every turn, I said to myself, he says, 
That really means I said in my heart, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. One of the Hebrewists wants to add to, the, to that phrase, a time for every matter and for every deed is over there, over there in the court of God. Let's remember, dear one, that the Bible makes it very plain to us that the court of final appeal is not the Supreme Court of the United States, nor is it the court of the Kremlin, nor is it any other judiciary body on the face of the earth. God says the court of final appeal is his court. He promises that he will judge every case of injustice and bring equity to the situation. That is the promise. That's what God has said he will do. And as we read this, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. Of whom is he speaking? Will you turn with me, please, to the book of John? And will you look in John, the fifth chapter? And will you look, please, at verse 22? John 5, verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone. God the Father is not the judge and will not be the judge. For not even the Father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the Son. The judge that God has appointed to sit upon that court of final appeal who will bring justice to everything is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who died for every sin and for every crime and washed it all away in his precious blood and made righteousness possible to man. He is the judge. You will turn with me to Acts chapter 17. You'll notice something else, that God has not only established who is the just, he has established a day when he's going to do it and bring this judgment to pass. And in the 17th chapter of John, and in verse 31, we read, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. The judge in that court of God's final appeal is going to be a man, the man Christ Jesus, the man with the human nature, the same as ours, without sin. His brow will be marked with the crown of thorns. His side will bear the mark of the spear that pierced him on Calvary. His hands will bear the mark of the nails that nailed him there. He is the one who's going to judge He's going to stand there saying you're here and you're in the face of judgment and you're in danger of judgment only because you've gone over my cross. I died for you to cleanse you from your sin. Now you've rejected and I must judge you. But not only has he set a day, but he's pointed out that it's an absolute certain thing. For he says there in verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We just finished a great celebration of Easter. But let's not forget, one of the great messages of Easter is that God's judge is alive forevermore. And someday he is going to bring every case, every matter, 
is going to be brought to him and he is going to bring justice to bear upon the thing. The book of Romans tells us he's going to justice, he's going to, he's going to judge us on the basis of his truth. He's going to judge us on the basis of our works. He's going to judge us on the basis of our light and he's going to judge the secrets of our heart. He is going to bring it right out of the open and he's going to bring justice to bear in every one of us. This is the promise of God. But we ought to come back now to what the Kohelet says because there is a, there's another thing that he is pointing out here. And that is in verse 18. Notice he says in verse 18, I said to myself concerning the sons of men. He looks at this scene of injustice that is all around him. He says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Let's remember. Will you turn with me to Psalm 17? Just glance back there. At the 17th Psalm, David there in that Psalm is crying out that God would deliver him from those who were oppressing him. And in verse 13, he says this. Look at it very carefully in verse 13. He says, Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Bring him low. This man who would oppress me, this man who would bring in, who would, who would bring, who would ravage my life and destroy it. Lord, he says, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked. Then you read in your text, with thy sword. May I tell you that that little word with is not in the original. Instead of the word with, you should have a comma because that reads literally this way, deliver my soul from the wicked, thy sword. Yes. God is in control of life. And very frequently, God uses the wicked injustice plans of men to bring judgment upon other wicked men. The whole book of Habakkuk reeks of this very idea. For there, you remember, remember the prophet was looking upon the sins of the people of Israel and he cried out to the Lord and he said, Lord God, look at how sinful these people are. Why don't you do something about it? You're a God of love in heaven. Do something about it. And God says, lift up your eyes and look to the east. I am doing something about it. I am raising up the Chaldean. And the Chaldeans are going to march against the land. And the Chaldeans are going to bring my judgment upon these sinful people of Israel. And the prophet's mouth fell open. And he looked up and he said, but God, the Chaldeans are worse. They are more immoral. They are more sinful than the people that you're judging. And God says, that's all right. Hang around a while because as soon as I am done bringing judgment upon the people of Israel by the, my sword, the Chaldeans, I will raise up my rod, the Persians, and they will punish the Chaldeans. And as soon as the wickedness of the Persians has reached its height, I will prepare my sword, the Grecians, to destroy the Persians. And as soon as the Persians, as soon as the Grecians have reached their height of sin, I will bring the Romans against them, etc., etc., etc. And God goes on his great work. 
God is in control and he does bring injustice. He uses it. He uses it to bring judgment upon men. He uses it for another purpose in here. It says he uses it to sift men. You remember the story of Peter. Remember that house? He and the other disciples boasted, Lord, we'll never forsake you. We'll never leave you. We'll go through with you to the end. And God said to him, Peter, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, not I, Lord. And they came and they took Christ back in there in that judgment scene in, in the house of Caiaphas. Oh, what a terrible scene of injustice. And out of that scene came a girl. And she said to Peter, you're one of them. And Peter said, no. And out of that scene of injustice came another one of those unjust people. And they said to Peter, you're one of them. And he says, no. And another one came and he said, you're another one. And he said, no. And he remembered what Jesus had said as the cock crowed. And he went out weeping. And Jesus had told him, he said, Satan wants to sift you. I am going to let that scene, that terrible hour of injustice, it's going to happen to me. It's going to be a trial in your life. It's going to be sifting of your life. And he says, and then, Peter, I got this to tell you, too. You're going to come back. And when you come back, I want you to use your newfound strength to strengthen my brethren. He does it. God uses injustice. He uses pain. He uses the misery that comes into our life for the purpose of sifting us and strengthening us. And he says another thing here. He says there at the end of that verse, he says, for them to see that they are but beasts. God wants men and he lets men go on with their injustice, their criminal acts, their mean way, their vicious way of treating each other. He lets this go on in order that men might be convicted and learn this fact. That without God, he's nothing more than an animal. Oh, he may be a superior animal within superior intelligence. He may have superior reflexes. He may have superior abilities to communicate. But without God, he is nothing more than a, an animal capable of all of the conduct and cruelty of the jungle. And God lets injustice come that we might learn this about ourselves. But he has introduced another subject when he brought this one up. And that is a second thing that men bring up and they say, well, if God is, is in control of life, how come that men die? How come men die? And he points out right away, beginning in verse 19, the prospect of death facing man. Look at it. And by the way, this is one of the favorite passages of the atheists and the agnostics and critics of the Bible. They just love this passage of Scripture because they think that in this passage of Scripture they have ammunition for their viewpoint that the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. But the trouble is, they don't know how to read it. Say, so look at what he said. He points out, first of all, the prospect of death facing man. He says, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. 
Indeed, they have all they all have the same breath. And there is no advantage for man over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and all return to dust. How true it is. Here is a man. He has been a very successful man, a powerful man in our country. And he dies. And what happens? Why, he returns to dust. And here's his pet poodle. And that poodle dies. And what happens to the poodle? He returns to dust. Go home. Pick up that darling dog in your arms and look at it. If Jesus tarry, you're going to the same place. That's a fact. Death is the great leveler. Men say, if God is a God of love, how could he permit this? If he controls all things, how can this be? Well, the... Koheleth goes on and he points out a, a puzzle concerning death that faces man. For in verse 21 he says, Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? He says, Who knows that when man dies, he goes to heaven? And when the dog dies, he just goes to the earth. Who knows? And now this is that verse that they love. They tell us, you see, Solomon, Solomon had serious doubts in his mind as to the immortality of man. He really doubted whether man would go on living after death. He was suspicious that death really ended it all for man just as it ends it all for the dog. Hogwash. Will you please look at the 12th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon's theology was much better than that. You look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. He tells you plainly there. He says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. This is the book of Genesis said. God formed man's body of the dust of the ground. And then God breathed into that body the spirit of life. And man became a living soul. And when man dies, his body goes in return to the dust, his spirit into the hands of God. And man goes on living a friend of mine reading this once, he said, see that? Doesn't that prove, therefore, that when everybody dies, that their, their spirits go to be with God? Doesn't that prove that everybody will then go to heaven? You notice, please, that there's something that the Ecclesiastes does not say to us here. He says to us that our spirits go to the hand of God, but he doesn't tell us what God does with it. Do you notice that? The rest of the Bible makes that very plain. 
that when the spirit of man gets to him, there are some whom God will say, enter my children into the kingdom, prepare for you. And to others, he will say, depart from me, for I have never known you. But when man dies, his body goes to the ground, his spirit goes to God. The Bible is very plain about that. Well, then what is, what is a Kohala talking about here? He's talking about what men can see. As you try to evaluate life from the viewpoint of a humanist, what can you say? What does your science tell you? What can your psychologist tell you? All he can tell you is about the reactions of your personality in your body. And this science with this test tube can only find your body goes to dust, and your psychologist can only find that your body goes to dust. That's all he can find. Nobody knows anything else. And the only way you know anything else is when you open your Bible and have the revelation of God. There is the only truth for Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and he brought life and immortality to the light in his own resurrection and gave us the positive assurance that our spirits live on after death, and someday our bodies are even going to be raised from the dead. But as far as a natural man can understand, he can't see any of this. And then the Koheleth moves on to point out something we need to do in the face of death. And what is it? He says, and I have seen, verse 22, that nothing is better. This is the best thing to do in the face of death. Have you ever asked yourself the question, if the doctor should tell you you had 12 hours to live, what would you do? What would you do? I remember as kids we used to ask that question. What would we do? And I have seen that nothing is better that a man should be happy in his what? In his activities. For that is his lot. What's the best thing to do to prepare for death? Will you look back, please, in the same chapter? Will you go back there to verse 10? Will you look at it? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Look at verse, four, look at verse uh, 12. Verse 12, will you please? I know that there is nothing better for them to rejoice and what? To do good in one's lifetime. What should one do in preparation for death? The task that God has put you on the earth to do. That's it. What should I do to prepare myself for death? You have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that you should perform them. So what should you do? Go on doing the task that God has assigned for you to do. And he says if you do that, you won't experience vexation of spirit. You'll experience the joy of the Lord. And from there he moves to his third thing that he wants us to face. For he says there, 
If you look at it, please, in chapter 4, he says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression. He had seen the acts of injustice. Now he says, I look again at all the acts of oppression which are being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Have you ever looked out in the world? I tell you, I almost hate to turn on the news because it's filled with oppression. A, a big factory closed down and hundreds of men thrown out of work, many of them on the verge of retirement. I look and I read and I look in the paper and I see pictures now of hundreds and thousands of children starving to death in some countries. Oppression. I happen to know that in some of those countries, the officials are living it up in a high life and spending literally millions of dollars in the game places of Europe while their people are starving. And these men have all kinds of help in their oppression of the people. And I say, if there's a God in heaven, why doesn't he do something about it? The Koheleth cries out, he said, I see the tears of these people. And I see their oppressors have lots of help, but they have no help. You can go back to the story of Job and run into the same thing as Job laid there in his ashes and his misery and suffering. He cried out, he said, hey, he said, God is too great for me to speak to him. And there is no daysman, there's no comforter between us. There's no one who can reach out and touch God and reach down and touch me and bring us together. That was the cry of Solomon's heart as he wrote this. Do you know something? That you and I cannot say that anymore? Solomon could write it, but you can't write it, and I can't write it anymore. Will you turn with me, please, over to the book of 1 John? 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. Now, will you look, please, at verse 1? My little children, I have written these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, paraclete, a comforter. An advocate, a comforter. That's what we have. We have a comforter with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Will you look with me, please, in the Gospel of John? Turn in your Bible to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. And will you look, please, at verse 16. Jesus praying. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another comforter, that he may be with you forever. 
even the spirit of truth. Yes, you and I do not have one comforter, we have two comforters. Jesus Christ came down to the world, was made as a man, and became one of us, taking on the nature of man, and he died for us and put away our sins and made us right with God, and then ascended up on high and is at the right hand of the Father. And there is the man, our fellow, our brother. He is pleading and praying for us. He is our comforter at the right hand of the Father, bringing grace to us at all moments and all times. And within us is dwelling another comforter, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the Holy Spirit says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 26, helps us in the moment of our weakness. And we are not without a comforter. Yes, we are in the midst of oppression. Yes, our job can be taken. Yes, our lives can be threatened. Yes, our homes can be invaded and we can endure uh, some kind of great humiliation. But listen, at the right hand of God, we have the Lord Jesus praying for us. And in our hearts, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and leading us and comforting us. We are not without a comforter. We have greater power than any being, any place in the universe, because we have the presence of God with us. And we can be sure of it. Solomon could not write that. He has written to us in verse 1 about the fierceness of oppression, and he goes on then to talk about the foolish ways men re respond to oppression. He says in verse 2, So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. For better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. How many times have you been there? How many times has the oppression become so great? How many times has the suffering become so intense that you would wish, oh, the way out of this is to end it all? Or as Job, you can cry out and say, it was better that I had never been born. It was better that they'd killed me the day I came forth from the womb. That's the foolish expression of men who don't understand God. And do not believe and know that God is in control of life under the sun. Madame Guyon, a great French believer, was taken from her home, her beautiful home. She was a very delicate and beautiful lady, a writer, a poetess, an artist, a great firm believer in Christ. She was taken from her home. She was brutally treated. She went through traumatic experiences after trauma of, of injustice and violence against her person. Finally, she was thrown into a dark and dirty and filthy dungeon. No Bible was given to her. No books were given to her. No writing material was given to her. All she could do was sit there in her pain and suffering in the midst of it all and suffer there in the darkness of that terrible stinky cell. The days went by. Madame Guyon wrote later, she said, my spirit was almost breaking within me. I did not know what to do. She said, I didn't know how to deal with it. And I heard in the, my dark moments as I slayed there in depression, I suddenly heard the grating of a door and I looked over and there was the little trap door at the bottom of the door to my cell was open. 
and light came through it. And she said, a, a man's hand thrust a little bowl with some food into it, into my room. The door was closed. And she crept over and she picked up that little bowl with some watery soup and a piece of bread. And she held it in her hand. And she lifted her eyes to the Father. And she said, Father, thank you. This will keep me alive today. Tomorrow is in your hand. Dear one, that's the answer. What do you do in the face of the oppression? What do you do in the face of the suffering? What's in your hand? As Madame Gouillon drank that soup, ate that bread, she leaned back up against the dirty wall and began to sing, sing praises to God. And through that iron door there filtered the sound of her singing voice. And the jailers were startled to hear not depression, not vexation of spirit, triumph over the most difficult situation possible. Thank you, Lord. This will keep me alive. You've put it in my hands. This is all I need. You've given me what I need for today. Tomorrow isn't yours. My friend, that's the only way you and I can live. Oh, you may think that you've got a lot more going for you than that. You may look at your strength, you may look at your wisdom, you may look at your personality, you may look at your education, you may look at your skills and you say, I've got all of this going for me. My friend, all you've got is what's in your hand. That's what God has given you for today. You know not what tomorrow will be, but you have what God has put in your hand today. And now he says, do your task and enjoy it. There is no better way under the sun. And you will not know frustration of spirit. You will know the victory of Christ in your life. Heavenly Father, oh, sometimes it seems so simple. We wonder what in the world and how can we just have this, but it's there, Lord. Simply trusting Jesus is all we have and all we need. You have given us our task. You have given us our talents. You've given us our gifts. And we can use these for your praise and for your glory. And we pray that you'll send us out of here doing it. Let each one of us look what we have in our hands. It's so much greater than Madame Guyon had. But, oh God, if we go on whining and wailing because of this difficulty and that, and we do not go on and do the task you've given it, we will be men and women most miserable. Help us to realize that you have given us our task for the day. You've given us what we need for the day. Help us to go on walking with Jesus and trusting Jesus and do it. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' precious and wonderful name.